0: This morning, we enter into some drama. Who doesn't like drama, right? And like Shakespearean kind of stuff, before Shakespeare was a big deal. Matthew tells us this morning in his 14th chapter of his gospel, a story that is meant to show us that resistance to the kingdom of God is growing. Growing. And also, he offers us a picture of what is awaiting Christ because of this growing resistance. This morning, we finally get to hear the story of how John the Baptist died. You may remember that earlier in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, that when Jesus began his Galilean ministry, John the Baptist had been arrested That's in chapter four, verse 12. And then later, in Matthew chapter 11, we hear from John the Baptist while he's in prison. But to this point in Matthew's gospel, we really never knew why John the Baptist had been arrested or what happened to him, which is kind of a bit odd, given how important he was at the beginning of this gospel and how instrumental he was into introducing us to Jesus Christ. Well, today, as Paul Harvey would say, We get more of the story, the rest of the story. That's just for you older friends out there who know who Paul Harvey is. In the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 14. And the first verse of that chapter, Matthew introduces us to a guy named Herod the Tetrarch. This Herod, named Herod Antipas, is the son of Herod the Great, who we met earlier in our study of Matthew. He was the one who murdered all those babies. And when he died, in order to try to maintain peace, he divided his share of the kingdom, the Roman Empire, amongst his sons. Archelaus, the brother of Herod Antipas, was made ethnarch, a kind of a higher title, while Antipas and his brother were made tetrarchs. And Herod Antipas was specifically given rule over Galilee and Perea, which is why he's of extreme importance to the ministry of Jesus. Herod the Tetrarch was brutal and he was worldly, just like his father and many of the rulers of this time. And word gets to him about Jesus and about the ministry of Jesus. We see that in verse one, the miracles that he's performing and how the people under his rule are now looking at Jesus as a powerful prophet who clearly has the favor of God upon him. As he hears about Jesus, Herod has the most interesting reaction to what he's heard. Look at verse 2. Here's what he says about Jesus, right? This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. There's a lot to unpack in that statement. A lot of questions that should come to mind. And the first one is, wait, John the Baptist is dead? Yes. And then through the means of flashback, John the Baptist informs us of how he died and why he was imprisoned in the first place. You see, Herod Antipas had been up to some really bad stuff with a woman named Herodias. Herod Antipas was originally married to the daughter of a regional king with the goal of securing peace in that area. But he met Herodias, who was the wife of his half-brother, Philip I, not a ruler, but a private citizen, I think. And somehow, Herodias is also Herod Antipas's half-niece. It's all pretty confusing. As I was reading it this week, it felt like a lifetime movie script. It's pretty crazy. But they were up to some no-good stuff, and they... Decided to get married, but Herodias says, The only way I'm gonna marry you or be in a relationship with you is if you divorce your current wife. And so he did that, but then the peace he was trying to secure by marrying the woman was suddenly threatened. He was attacked. He couldn't hold on to his power, so Rome had to intervene. And I'm sure that was very embarrassing for him. And a reality check that the power he had been given was very limited. But for him, it was worth it to be with Herodias and John the Baptist, the prophet that he is, comes to Herod, who is ruling over the Jewish people in this area, confronted him because what he was doing was not good as a ruler over the people of God. He says that the actions of this wicked ruler are unlawful, and they were unlawful, according to God's own law, because in Leviticus 1816 and 2021 20, God says you can't marry or have an affair with your brother's wife. It's incestuous. It's adulterous. And John sees that as a problem for someone ruling over the people of God. And so he comes boldly before him and says, hey, this is not good. You cannot do that. Well, that's a problem for Herod, who recognizes the limits of his own power he doesn't want these people to rise up against him because a powerful prophet has spoken against him and so he arrests here uh john the baptist in verse five but he didn't want to put him to death because he still feared the people and what they would do if he killed a known prophet of god but the arrest is not enough for herodias She knows her fate lies with the fate of Herod Antipas. And so she believes something more must be done. And so she devises a plan, a plan that we see unfold in verses six to 12 of Matthew chapter 14. Now when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, probably around 14 years old, just shows you the depth of depravity of the court of Herod Antipas. She danced before the company. And you can imagine what kind of dance. And it pleased Herod so that he promised an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here right now on a platter. And the king was sorry in multiple ways, I guess. But because of his oaths and his guests, He commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus. Well, that took a pretty violent turn, didn't it? A beheading served on a platter. Herod is entrapped by his own rashness and he's, forced to choose between two things that he fears, looking weak in front of his guests or stirring up a mob of religious devotees who would riot upon hearing about John the Baptist's death. The immediate fear wins out and he has John the Baptist's head cut off and served on a platter, a desperate attempt to hold on to the favor of the people that he loosely rules. And right at that moment, As I was reading the passage this past week, preparing for today, the Holy Spirit began to stir something in my heart that I hope that he will stir stir in yours today. Right at that moment of that violent event, it seemed to me that Matthew was asking us as the reader to wrestle with a question, a question he's been asking us to wrestle with through the entirety of his gospel. You see, this story is not here by accident. It's not just here for entertainment purposes. It's here to serve a purpose, the larger purpose for why Matthew is writing, all tied to this theme in the Gospel of Matthew of King Jesus and the kingdom he is building. And here's the question that I think that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is asking us to wrestle with. Whose kingdom is better? Or which man... In comparing Herod and John the Baptist, which man is pursuing the right kingdom? And as a consequence of that, which kingdom should we pursue? You see, Herod and John the Baptist could not be more different. And they represent, in some ways, the two kingdoms we've been talking about the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the flesh, and the kingdom of God, the one that Jesus is building. And in the story, we see these two men representing these options, challenging our expectations and our desires about what we really want in this life, what we are pursuing. So who do you want to be like in this story? Which kingdom do you think is better, the kingdom of Herod, the one he's pursuing, or the kingdom that John the Baptist is pursuing? So let's dive into this story with that perspective. Let's press into that question, considering each of the men that Matthew's allowing us to compare. So Herod, Antipas, the Tetrarch, who's obviously pursuing the kingdom of this world. The things of this world. He's consumed with the present as we see him in the text. He longs for material goods and material pleasures. He had worldly riches. He had worldly power. He had everything that we long for in the flesh. And from a distance, it would seem like he's pretty happy. Like he would be someone that we would want to be like, that we would want what he has. But when you get closer and you see what God sees, there's a lot of unhealth There's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of brokenness, a lot of sin behind that veil. You see, there was obvious deficiency in his life and his pursuit of material pleasure. He never had enough. Herod was never satisfied, or if he was satisfied, it only lasted for a moment. His wife wasn't enough. His power wasn't enough to protect him. When an attack came, he was threatened over them. And because of that, he lived in fear. He was consumed by the fear of man. We see fear all over this passage. Look at verse 5. Though he wanted, and you would think that if anybody could have what they wanted, it would be Herod, right? He wanted to put John the Baptist to death, but he didn't. Why? Because he feared the people. Isn't that interesting? He's ruling over them, but he's ruling over them in fear because they held him to be a prophet. Verse 9, when he's forced to to honor his request, his his wrath, his rash oath. The king was sorry, verse 9, because of his oath and his guests. He commanded it to be given because he was afraid of what they would do or what they would think of him if he didn't follow through with what he promised quickly. So... The Bible's showing us this man seems powerful, but really his power is limited. This man seems content, but in reality, he is desperate. And what's even worse is that he is consumed with guilt, consumed with fear. And we see that in his response to hearing about Jesus in verse 2. When he starts rambling on about John the Baptist coming back from the dead, this kind of mythology that he's built up into his mind because of all the sinful, wicked things he's done to secure his power. What's power if it doesn't bring about peace? What's power if you're entrapped by all the things that you think you rule over? What kind of kingdom is that? when you have to pay these kinds of prices to hold on to it. But then consider John the Baptist. He was pursuing a different kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus has come to introduce and build, the kingdom of God. He rejected material goods. He rejected material pleasures. Do you remember this when we first met John the Baptist in chapter three, verse four? What did he wear? A garment of camel's hair. Now listen, the catwalks, of Jerusalem in that day, the catwalks of Paris today, ain't nobody coming down with a dress made of camel hair. It's not the finest fabric in the world and he's got a belt of leather. And what did he eat? Bugs dipped in honey. I don't care how much honey is on that bug. I'm not gonna be eating a locust. And yet he was so committed to rejecting the things of this world that he lived off of the sustenance of the desert and ate the locust and the honey. And from a distance, he may look like someone that you don't want to be like. And yet, he enjoyed a freedom that Herod did not. He was rich in different ways with a, a different kind of power. A power from God that drew people to him. And a power that threatened the earthly powers. As you see in verses 4 and verse 8. See, John the Baptist feared God in a way that made him free from the fear of man. And it allowed him to speak truth even when it was costly. Think about the courage and conviction that John the Baptist had to have to stand before a guy he knew was as wicked and evil as Herod was and say, hey brother, what you're doing is wrong and God will not honor it. That's a level of courage and boldness that is supernatural. God had given him that. And he was willing to say what was right, even if it was costly. And it cost a lot. He lost his earthly freedom, and then he lost his physical life. But John the Baptist did not fear that loss. Did not fear that loss. At least not to the point where it cost him his faith. His faith in the promises of God allowed whatever earthly or physical or fleshly fear he had to be overcome so that he could remain faithful. Even in the face of a wicked ruler. It reminds me a lot of a lot of prophets in the Bible. A lot of prophets of the Old Testament who under the compulsion of God spoke to powerful wicked men to say to them, hey, listen, what you are doing is not good. It's wrong and God will not bless. Think about Daniel. And his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they were in Babylonian captivity, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, as they stood in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, hey, listen, dude, I know you got this massive idol that you have built to yourself, but we're not gonna bow. And he says, if you don't bow, you're gonna be put in the fiery furnace. It's really hot. You're gonna die. And they said, listen, we know God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're still not gonna worship that because we worship him. Or Daniel, he says to Darius, brother, I'm gonna to pray to God. You can throw me in the lion's den, but my God created those lions and he can shut their mouths if he wants to. And that's exactly what he did. Or Elijah and Ahab. Elijah, you better bring that rain. I'm not bringing that rain until you repent, Ahab. And in those instances, God spared their life. But in this instance, he does not spirit of the life of the prophet John the Baptist for reasons that I think we'll see later. But here's what Matthew wants us to see right now. The kingdom of God will be opposed. God is opposed. There are forces at work right now trying to stop the redemptive work of God and the building of his kingdom and all those who would give their life to it. But even with that knowledge, We should endure, we should endure the opposition because the kingdom of God is worth it. Because the glory of God is worth it. And by the way, friends, God will have victory, has victory over anything that opposes it. As Pastor Corey said earlier today, the kingdom of God may be opposed, but it is never threatened. There's nothing that comes against the kingdom of God that has even the possibility of having victory over it. And you can rest in that promise. The kingdom that God is building is better and it is worth your life. Why is the kingdom better? Why should you choose that kingdom? Let me just offer you a few observations from our text today that help us appreciate in greater ways the way that the kingdom of God is better. First of all, it's got a better king. And we see this in comparison between King Herod and Jesus rather than just the comparison of Herod to John the Baptist because there's a comparison there in the text as well. As we read Matthew's Gospel, we see the vanity of earthly power, the limits of earthly power. It's a fickle thing, isn't it? We see it in our own democratic government today. You have power today, but in two months or two years, the course of a news cycle, it can be gone. And four years, those who are in power are no longer in power. It goes to and fro as the people lead. And that has happened in every government institution in the history of the world. Earthly power is fleeting. And even at this moment, Herod didn't have a lot of power. He was down the line in terms of Roman rule. And he only had that limited rule because of who his dad was. And his dad's desire to maintain the peace among his boys. And he used the limited power he had for his own good. Not the good of his people. In fact, it was often at the expense of his people. They suffered for Herod's glory. But Jesus is a very different king. He's a very different kind of ruler and offers a very different kind of kingdom. Hear me, the power of Jesus is not fickle. It is not fleeting. It is not threatened. It is not contingent on anything. It is an eternal power, a supreme power that brings about a security in his rule and reign. There's never a moment of desperation in Jesus where he thinks he's going to lose what is his. It all belongs to him. And he will never act in panic to secure his own glory because his glory is secure. No one, no person, no entity, no power can take his power. There's nothing to defend because he doesn't have to defend and he can willingly use it and he does willingly use it, not for his own good, but for our good. Because in that there is Glory for him. He doesn't act on a whim. He's not tossed to and fro by fleshly desires as Herod was. No, he acts in divine wisdom in accordance with the design of his heavenly father to lead us to salvation, to lead us to freedom, to lead us to life. He's steady, he's unchanging, and you can trust him. He is a good king. Now, friends, who wouldn't want to live under the rule and reign of that kind of king? We all live under an authority, whether you want to admit it or not. I know we like to think that we're free here in America, and we like to think of ourselves as individuals, but you serve something. You serve something. Don't you want to serve a king like that? Don't you want to give your life to a king like that? that and live in his kingdom because it is better. The kingdom of the world, it's ruled by bad kings, bad powers, evil powers. The kingdom of God, it is ruled by a glorious eternal king whose name is Jesus. The kingdom of God is better. It's worth the cost because it delivers us from unhealthy fear. Unhealthy fear, which is a consequence of sin, by the way. Sin is a dangerous, damaging thing. And you see it eat up Herod. It eats him up. I read Herod's response in verse 2. I read about his paranoia. And although I really want to feel superior to him and I want to feel better than him and think, yeah, he's getting what he deserves, if I'm honest, guys, I got to say that I know the feeling. Now, I'm not up here to confess that I've ever committed a murder on the wicked, desirous whims of my adulterous lover. (laughs) I have not done that. But I have been consumed by the consequences of sin. I've laid awake at night, not being able to sleep, wondering what people would do if they knew the deepest, darkest recesses of my heart. I've wondered and panicked when God was going to bring judgment upon me for something that I did earlier in the week. I remember getting a speeding ticket one time and thinking about all the bad things I had done over the past week and thinking this police officer is a object of God's wrath toward me for what I said or watched or did earlier in the week. Sin entraps us in the brokenness of this world. And here's how it does it. It lies to us to make us believe that the things that do not honor God will satisfy us. And when we foolishly believe that lie, it grips us with fear that we will be completely ejected by God and completely rejected by man because of our foolishness in believing it. And it leaves us in a state, a constant state of fear and shame. Herod was entrapped in this fear. And you see it in response to the news of Jesus in verse 2. And in response to the challenges of John the Baptist in verses five and nine, but I want you to hear me this morning. God does not want you to live in fear. God does not want you to live in shame. God does not want you to be entrapped or in bondage to the effects and the brokenness of sin. The kingdom of God frees us from that fear by giving us a healthy fear, a proper fear a proper understanding of where we are to devote our lives in the fear of God which as proverbs 9:10 says is the beginning of wisdom. Now we're not talking about the kind of fear that makes you run away from God. It's the kind of fear that brings reverence and awe because you understand the potential of the power of God. And you understand what he could do to you because of your sinfulness. But you also understand how he has used that power for your good in sending his son to free you and invite you to come to him and take the work that he has done in that power upon you for your good. You see, because John the Baptist's conscience was clean, because he knew the Lord truly, he did not fear man. He did not fear death. He was not consumed with fear, the fear of losing his life, because he knew the power of God, and he knew what God had promised, and he knew that he could do it. And even if it cost him his life, he would be faithful, because God had promised him a better life. Friends, that's truly freedom. You may think that you are free in this life, but you are not free until Christ has set you free. And the the more you live for the kingdom of this world, the more you will be consumed by fear and shame and guilt because you know that you're not living in the way that you were designed. And you will run over people to secure your own glory, and it will eat you up but there's a different way to live. There's a different kingdom to pursue, one that rests in the finished work of Christ, the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. Would you choose that kingdom? And finally, the kingdom of God is better because it leads to eternal life. Perhaps the most shocking difference in the tale of these two men is the one left standing. Matthew, you're asking me to consider which one is better, which kingdom is better. Well, I gotta say, I kind of wanna choose the kingdom that lets me keep my head. And yet, these extreme examples force us to wrestle with whether or not we believe what it is that God has promised. There's a pretty clear display of the power of earthly powers here in this text. Friends, earthly powers can affect you. There are consequences to your life. We're not saying that they can't do anything in your life, this physical life, if you are in Christ. They can take your life. They can have an effect. But Matthew wants to see the limit of their power. And to ask the question, okay, at the end of this passage, who is really alive and who is really dead? Which kingdom actually leads to life, true life? And which kingdom actually leads to true death? It's a difficult thing to wrestle with because physical death is perhaps the scariest thing that we can face. It's the most severe consequence of death. But death has two elements to it, right? When we think about it from a biblical perspective, there's spiritual death that leads to physical death. And even in this moment, John the Baptist may have experienced physical death, he has a promise of spiritual life that will lead to physical life. And even though Herod has physical life right now, he is spiritually dead. And that will lead to an eternity of death separated from God in hell. Friends, Jesus has come to set us free from the spiritual death we have suffered because of our sin. And one day, as a result, we will receive glorified bodies to step into new life, eternal, abundant life that can never be taken away from you, free from the stain of sin. And John the Baptist set his hope on that a different promise, a different life, and a different world. And he believed it. He believed that, God, that what God had prepared for him was better than what he was losing. His citizenship, his citizenship was in a different kingdom. He was made for a different world, and he entrusted his life to the rule and the reign of a better king, King Jesus, even though he didn't even fully see the ministry of Christ. That's God-given belief. God-given faith because he knew the Lamb of God had come. The kingdom of God is better. A better king that frees us from fear and leads us into eternal life. Now, friends, if we can grab a hold of these truths, then there's nothing that we can lose in this life that is greater than what we have gained by the promise of God. And remember... All of these promises are secured in the completed work of Christ. And John the Baptist is picturing for us what Jesus did to secure the reality of this kingdom. In this passage, John the Baptist is still serving as the forerunner of Christ. And perhaps why his life was not spared. Because Jesus' life was not spared. And that's not a failure of God. You could think that In this moment, 14, God failed because he didn't sustain the life of John the Baptist in the same way that he sustained Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or or Elijah. But this is not a failure of God here. This is the purpose of God, that in death we find life. And Matthew wants us to prepare for the reality that as opposition grows, it will be even more costly and Jesus, like John the Baptist, will die. But, kind of a weird fulfillment of Herod's prophecy there in verse two, Jesus will be raised from the dead. And he will evidence miraculous powers that tear down the powers of this world. He will bring about a greater kingdom. So let's receive the call and listen to the word of God. There you go. How should we respond to this choice? How should we respond to this choice between two kingdoms? Let's hear that call from God, okay? So firstly, the better king, Jesus. Can we just behold the glory of Christ today? Can we just think about what it means to live under his rule and his reign? Can we just give thanks for the kingdom that we have been brought into as sons and daughters of the most high God? Friends, we have a king who is not guided by self-preservation but by self-sacrifice. We have a king whose power is not threatened, but who uses that power for our good and his glory. He is worth your life. His kingdom is worth your life. Because he gave his life. Do you know him? Are you a part of this kingdom? I I pray that if you are not a part of this kingdom, if you've never given your life, to the lordship, the rule and reign of Christ, that today would be the day when you behold him and you realize how much you need him, how much you want to live under his rule and reign, and you would enter into that kingdom by repentance and belief. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You can transition from an enemy of God to a child of God, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You can do that today. Declaring in faith that Jesus is your king. And for those of us who've already done that, can we just reflect today on the goodness of King Jesus and celebrate him? But secondly, let's walk in the healthy fear of God and not the fear of man. Let's Let's remove the threat of the enemy to entrap us in the brokenness of this world by by casting aside sin and believing the promises of God, choosing to to fear God more than man. Let's, Let's not make decisions as individuals or as a church about what pleases man. Let's give every fiber of our being to answering this question what pleases God? What makes God happy? Because that's that's what's gonna make me happy. This week as you go to work, this week as you go to school, every day when you wake up, would you just ask this question, how can I make God happy today? How can I live today for the pleasure of God, knowing that in pursuing his pleasure, I'm gonna receive pleasure and joy and happiness and abundance? That in fearing God, I will not fear man and I will live an abundant eternal life. And then finally, let's embrace the promise of abundant and eternal life. Let me just ask you this. Do you really believe what God has promised? Do you really believe that this life is not all that there is? Do you really believe there is an eternity that is awaiting us either with God or apart from God? And does your earthly life look like it? Does the way that you live Monday to Saturday and even on Sunday, does it reflect a belief, a a higher commitment to the hope and the promise that God has laid out for us in what is to come? Are you storing up for yourselves treasures here? Are you you building a life only for the kingdom of this world or are you storing for yourselves treasures in heaven? Directing your life toward that kingdom which is better. You will only be able to live a life that is fully pleasing to God with that kind of commitment because there is a cost to following Jesus. We are opposed, but if you believe in that hope, you know where victory rests. It doesn't matter what this world takes, it will not threaten what God has promised. So, which kingdom will you choose? The kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? Which man do you really wanna be like? When you get close, Herod or John the Baptist? Wherever you are, would you bow your heads, spending some time in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to help you know how to respond to the work of God in this text, to how he has revealed himself through his word, through Christ, Oh, would you see King Jesus today and the kingdom he is building? Would you step into the fear of God that is proper and right in his kingdom? Would you embrace the reality and the promise of eternal life? Let's reject the worldly, fleshly idea that what this world has to offer is better. Let's see the cost of it. And let's set our eyes on the hope that God has given us in Jesus. And Father, would you help us know how to respond today? If there's someone who doesn't know you, they give their life to you today. But for those of us who are in the kingdom, would we see how better it really is Lord, we see the folly of this world and the wisdom that we have been given from you and live accordingly for your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand, church family, and sing in response.